in this episode of Boss Files. Microsoft went through some trying challenges. In some ways, I think you can think of the Microsoft antitrust battles that started in the 1990s as sort of technology's first collision with the modern world as we know it. Microsoft president and chief legal officer Brad Smith. He's out with a new book, Tools and Weapons, The Promise and the Peril of the Digital Age. And he has a warning for big tech. Well, I think whether you're Amazon or Facebook or Microsoft or anyone else, first, I think we have to recognize that the public wants to know more about what we're doing and how we're doing it. We have to step up to more transparency. Uh, I think we have to you know, pr be prepared to take more steps to protect the privacy of people's information. He's worked at Microsoft for more than a quarter century and learned the lessons of battling with the government over antitrust issues. He says it's time to start embracing regulation. We need to keep doing more, but I also think we need to help governments do more. And you see, whether it's at Facebook or elsewhere, you see companies starting to say regulation is needed, regulation will be good. That's a good first step. Until companies are putting specific ideas on the table, until we're engaging in that level of conversation, I don't think we're doing enough. Why he says he is most concerned about facial recognition technology. Plus, he tells me it's imperative to bring broadband to all corners of America to ensure true equality. Microsoft founder Bill Gates has turned to Brad Smith for some of his most important professional advice. And he thinks Smith would make a great diplomat. So, would Brad Smith ever run for public office? I ask him. Here's my conversation with Microsoft's Brad Smith. Brad Smith, thank you. Thank you. Very much. I would like to begin with where you come from. You have been at Microsoft for 26 years, 4,000 employees at the beginning, 140,000 or so That's now. That's right. But you were not born some fancy, high-flying tech guy. You are, you were a boy from Appleton, Wisconsin. So how did that shape you? I was born in this middle-sized town in the middle of the country, Appleton, Wisconsin, in a middle-income family. Um, with the most common name in the middle of the phone book, Smith. And I think every day I felt lucky. You know, you'd look back and you'd say I was privileged. I actually felt privileged to experience what it meant to grow up in the middle of this country in a, in a nice town and a middle-income family. Well, I actually think you were very lucky. And I mean, being I'm from Minnesota, Minneapolis, a little bit bigger than Appleton, but you know. Yeah. But it has shaped how I think about things and how I approach my job as a journalist. It does that every day. And I wonder for you now, you know, having had all of the success at Microsoft and, and the wealth and the opportunity that it brings. I'd assume, though, that those Appleton roots still really shape the way you think. I think they do. I think there were a couple of things uh, that shaped me growing up. And of course, um, you know, no one could be more important than what my parents were for me. Yeah. Uh, and. Yeah, in part, they taught me, uh, don't talk about yourself. Uh, you know, ha ask questions of other people. But there was also a breadth of perspective. My mom grew up in northeastern Alabama in the 1950s, um, you know, a very different place from northeastern Wisconsin. And you know, she would share stories. Um, you know, her father worked for Monsanto. Uh, he would have to go to the Atlanta airport to go on business trips. Uh, there was an African-American man who worked for Monsanto who would drive him. And at a time when um, a black person couldn't sit in the same seat on a bus, um, you know, my grandfather, her father, would always sit in the front seat 
of the car with him. And you know, one of the stories she shared was when there was a day when he was driving back from Atlanta and got in an accident with a school bus in Georgia, a school bus full of white children, um, he could call one person from the jail and he called my grandfather. Wow. And the real message was help other people who are different from you. Yeah. And going to a school, elementary school, I believe in Racine, yeah. Wisconsin, you were actually, as I understand it, one of the few white students in your class, predominantly African-American? Yeah, it was so interesting. This was in Racine, Wisconsin at the end of the 1960s. And the, the school system created a program for sixth graders. You know, they plucked kids from around the school district who showed some promise. Uh, and uh, they bust us all to the elementary school in the uh, inner part of the city. So you had a classroom of about 20 w white kids and then five African-American kids. Uh, and it was always so interesting during the day because you were in a classroom that had a majority of white kids. And then you'd go out on the playground for recess and you had, you know, two of these classrooms. So you had 40 white kids and 400 African-American kids. And um, a dynamic emerged that I'll always remember. I, I think you, know, you learn to have each other's back. Uh, and you know, so when people talk about busing and what it does, um, all I know is as a white middle-income kid, it did a lot to help me. Did a lot to help you. Bill Gates says in the foreword to the great book that you co-wrote with Caroline Brown, who's here, um, that he turned to you for the most important professional advice. You actually got him, Bill Gates, to change his mind on a very big thing when it came to the antitrust probe of Microsoft. I was one person, I think, who well, had the opportunity. Well, he says you. <laughs> yeah, it's like, um, yeah, Microsoft went through some trying challenges. In some ways, I think you can think of the Microsoft antitrust battles that started in the 1990s as sort of technology's first collision with the modern world as we know it. Uh, and Windows was not just hugely popular, uh, you know, it was in so many ways the dominant software force uh, when it came to personal computing. Yeah. And ultimately, we had to change. Uh, Microsoft had to change. We had to, I think, do more to listen to other people, understand their concerns, acknowledge their concerns, and then ultimately address them. And that required a lot of change, as Bill notes. Well, you, you talk about having to look in the mirror and see not what we wanted to see, but what other people saw of us. I think we all need to do that a little bit more. I certainly do. But how did, how did you convince Bill Gates to, to believe that? It involved a lot of time spent together. You know, a number of conversations, um, you know, working through a series of problems. Uh, we went through lots of negotiations with governments in this country and around the world. We went through lots of negotiations with other companies. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, each step of the way, it uh, involved some new learning, uh, some new realization. I don't think that big changes are typically made in a single step. Mm -hmm. um, it tends to involve lots of incremental steps along the way, and that was true for us at Microsoft. You quote George Washington in the book. Do you want to remind our listeners of what and why? Well, I, George Washington wrote a farewell address to the American people, uh, and I think it still speaks to the American people today. It was his legacy, his gift, if you will, to all of us. And one of the things he talks about is what it takes to maintain a democracy. And he recognized that a democracy is uniquely vulnerable 
to foreign interference. He had experienced it him, himself. Uh, the French had sent an ambassador named Charles Genet over to the United States to really rile up the American public and turn the U.S. in support of France in its war against England. Hamilton and Jefferson, two people who were always fighting with each other, actually set their differences aside and supported Washington's decision to demand Genet's recall. And Washington said that this kind of interference is one of the most baneful foes, those were his words, of a democratic or republican government, and we must always be on our alert to be prepared to deal with it. I didn't expect to ask you any or many political questions in this interview, but I would be remiss not to to follow up with this, because you do engage with the Trump administration. You go to the White House. You believe that having a seat at the table, even when you disagree, you've sued them over immigration, Microsoft has. But I guess at this moment, Brad, I would ask you then, given the foreign interference in our election, both in 2016, the efforts in 2018, the very likely chance that we'll see it in 2020, what we've heard from Putin today, um, what would you say to President Trump on this front? Well, I would say the same thing to every American, which is... But look, to him specifically, knowing the language he's used and how he has dealt with, say, Putin on the world stage in Helsinki, what would you tell him? I think we all need to remember we're Americans first. We disagree on so many things, maybe more today than in a long time, but not necessarily more than other times in American history. We need to be able to set our differences aside, whether we're Democrats or Republicans or independents, and recognize that there are certain fundamentals to democracy that we need to stand up together to protect. And in the 21st century, the interferences we need to worry about the most are often interferences that are based on the use of technology, yeah. disinformation, hacking, and the like. So this is where we get to your book, Tools and Weapons, the Promise and the Peril of the Digital Age. You talk a lot through the book about ethics and about it being a defining question of our time, ethics in technology. And I wonder if you think any big tech company in the last decade or two has actually been founded on a core principle of ethics? I think there are lots of technology companies that have been founded on a desire to do good for the world. I think there are many companies that believe that they do good for the world, and indeed in so many ways they are. But I also think that there is an opportunity for, I'll just say introspection, because it's one thing to do what you love to do and be committed to it doing good for the world, it's another thing to step back and ask the harder questions. Are we? Are we? Are there unintended consequences? Are there opportunities that we're prepared to look at and say this would make us money, but we're not going to do it because it's going to put people's lives at risk or broader ethical issues or, or humanitarian needs at risk? I think it's in this area in part where there's an opportunity for, I'll just say, people across tech, but maybe it's all of us uh, to ask ourselves these questions. But isn't it, I mean, it's more than an opportunity right now. I would argue from the outside that we're in a moment of crisis in term, and, and how we get out of this is going to depend which way big tech turns. And we'll talk about sort of what Microsoft is doing uh, on this front. But you write, when you create tech that changes the world, you have to accept the responsibility for what you've created. In some respects, has big tech created a monster that right now is out of control when it comes to people's privacy. 
Well, we've created what is both a tool and a weapon. That's why Carol Ann and I entitled our book, Tools and Weapons. Um, we do see technology being weaponized, uh, sometimes you know, quite deliberately as a weapon, as a cyber weapon or cyber attack, sure. but also more broadly. And I think you're right to raise privacy as an issue, or we need to think about the impact of technology on our jobs and the economy. Well, Tim Cook says privacy in and of itself has become a crisis. Is he right? Uh, I do think it's right to say that there is a privacy crisis. Um, and I think it will benefit us to treat it that way. I think that what we should do as an industry is start to extend to our customers the privacy rights that they have, say, under the law in Europe, and do that not just in Europe, but around the so world. So you think that the U.S. would benefit from GDPR? I do. Actually, I do. We've been very clear. We Actually, we called for a national privacy law. I, I gave a speech 2005. in 2005. Yes. Okay, so help me understand the likelihood of that happening. We just saw Mark Zuckerberg go to Washington. He met with the president. He met with a number of people in in the Senate. Um, How like how likely is it actually because GDPR would be a huge change for big tech companies and the data they have to turn over to individuals and the responsibility they have to take and the speed with which they need to do it? Well, the first thing I would say is we actually do have a de facto national privacy law in the United States that will take effect on January 1st, 2020. It's called the Law of California. The California Consumer Privacy Act was passed last year. Because one of every eight Americans lives in California, I believe that what we're likely to see next year is most businesses adapting. Yeah, because it's, you know, it's, it's more efficient to say, hey, we're going to adapt to California law. And the fact that somebody else lives in New York doesn't mean that they're going to be treated as a second class citizen compared to somebody in California. Then the question will become, will we then get a national privacy law that is adopted by the national government, namely the U.S. Congress? I think that's still a couple of years off. But this is a wave. It's a tidal wave that started in Europe. It has sort of jumped the Atlantic and gone all the way to the Pacific and Sacramento. I think we're going to see that wave coming back across this country. You had a series of interesting meetings at the White House under the Obama administration and under the Trump administration. But I want you to take us back to the Obama administration. You're in the room with President Obama, a number of tech leaders. Marissa Meyer was there, another Wisconsinite. Can I say Wisconsinite? Sure. (laughs) And and you're talking about this issue. This is post-Edward Snowden. Yeah. And he said something that struck you and strikes me. And he looked at you guys, tech leaders, and said, you know, basically, it's only a matter of time until the guns turn on you. Yeah. Yeah. It was in December of 2013, a meeting in the Roosevelt Room in the West Wing of the White House. Had about 16 uh, tech leaders, household names of technology, Uh, And everyone was pressing the president and the vice president to put more checks and balances on the NSA, the National Security Agency. Uh, And during that conversation, as you point out, as we write in our book, President Obama said, I have a suspicion that the guns will turn. He was right. Yeah. He he was five years ahead of his time. I think the guns turned in 2018 with the Cambridge Analytica episode. But it was very prescient. And he followed up that statement by explaining that in his view, which I think was also correct, the companies around the table had as much or more data about the uh, American population, people as consumers, than the government did. And what he said was the demands that you are making of the government today will probably someday be made of you as well. Did you think he was right? Oh, I thought he was right at the time. I mean, that's you just didn't know when. 
Yeah, I always thought that privacy would be one of these issues that would be quiet until it became loud. And the question was, when would it become loud? I, I think I probably thought it would become louder sooner than it did. Yeah, why, why didn't it? Did it not because people like getting free stuff? Or they think it's free until they realize their data and their privacy is actually the currency? I think that is true. I think, interestingly enough, um, I still talk with people uh, in Silicon Valley who say, well, this privacy stuff is overblown because nobody's really cutting back on their use of their smartphone or their social media. Mm-hmm. And I think what those folks are missing is that people don't want to give up these apps. They are, in a way, necessities of modern day life, nor do they want to give up their privacy. And the way they maintain them both is actually to have stronger privacy protection under privacy laws. More from my conversation with Microsoft President and Chief Legal Officer Brad Smith after the break. I'd like to talk a little bit about Facebook, because I think Facebook is to many people sort of the poster child of this. And whichever way Facebook goes next and how they handle this is, going, I think, going to inform a lot of this for us. You write about Facebook. Facebook had not designed its services as a platform for foreign governments to use to disrupt democracy, but neither had it put in place measures that could prevent or even recognize such activity. Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg have actually reached out to you personally for advice. You've consulted with them. And this is part of you thinking sort of all of big tech has to be part of the solution. So what, how did you advise them? Well, I don't want to talk about you know, individual conversations with specific uh, people. Have they heeded your advice? I actually think that Facebook is learning and moving in a positive direction. Uh, you know, the, the next sentence in our book actually says... And neither did anybody else anticipate that Facebook would be used in this way. The rest of us in tech did not. The people in the U.S. government did not. Um, And the the real question is, what do we do? What can they do? What can we all do together? And I think this is an area where progress is starting to emerge. Much more progress is needed. There are huge questions ahead of us. But, you know, as in those early months or years when I was talking with Bill Gates, Um, you learn by taking steps and then taking more. And I think that's where the whole industry is today, including those companies in the social media side of it. So Facebook's former chief information security officer, Alex Damos, I'm sure you read this a few months ago, wrote that he thought that you should replace Mark Zuckerberg as CEO of Facebook. And I'm not going to bother asking you if you would take that job. Thank you very much. Because I know you won't answer that. But I will ask you this. If you had that job today... What would be your first move? Well, that's another way of asking me the question. No, that's a fair question. (laughs) No, look, the one thing I've said is not only do I like where I am and not only does Facebook have a CEO, I wouldn't even be the right person to be the CEO of that company. I think that what Facebook and all the rest of us need to keep doing is stepping back, as you put it, the way we put it, look at ourselves in the mirror, understand these concerns people have. I think we need to keep acknowledging, you know, these privacy concerns are real. These threats to democracy are not only real, but they are urgent. We need to keep doing more. But I also think we need to help governments do more. And you see, whether it's at Facebook or elsewhere, you see companies starting to say regulation is needed. Regulation will be good. That's a good first step. 
until companies are putting specific ideas on the table, until we're engaging in that level of conversation, I don't think we're doing enough. Except I will say they weren't calling for regulation when things were fine and dandy. When they were making tons of money and no one was upset with them, these companies weren't calling for regulation. But it is good that there is this conversation now. Um, Should big tech companies like Facebook and others be willing to make less money for a period of time and tell their shareholder, it's hard to tell the street, my quarterly earnings aren't going to be what you want. But for the, you know, the betterment of the society mm-hmm. and democracy, these are the steps we have to make. And to Facebook's credit, they've made a ton of steps and a ton of investment. But do, does big tech need to get ready for a reckoning where they are making less money because they are stopping some of the businesses they have and investing for more protection? I think any day of any week where there is a question of whether we'd rather make more money or do what it takes to defend our democracy, we should focus on defending our democracy. We are companies that are products of these freedoms and of this democracy. We will be successful for the long term. We will be profitable for the long term only if we live in a country that has a healthy democracy that has to come first. Is breaking up big tech, which is a popular line on the campaign trail now, is it the solution, a solution? I will note, Congressman Cicilline told us in an interview for the documentary we did on Amazon, that's not a power, frankly, that Congress has. You can't just go in and break up a company. So I think it's, it's kind of comical that it's like the line on the campaign trail. But you know, there are laws that can be passed that would essentially do as much. Is it a solution? I'm skeptical. Like if you made Facebook, Josh Hawley, a Republican senator, asked Zuckerberg in person in D.C. to spin out, to, to sell WhatsApp, for example. If you took WhatsApp and Instagram away from Facebook, does that solve things? Um, I think that your question actually points to the bigger question. What is the problem that people want to solve? If the problem is that a company is too big, well, then that points in one direction. But I don't actually think that's the real problem that people are worrying about. You know, they're worrying about what is the effect of this on other businesses in some cases and economic opportunity. Mm-hmm. They're worried about privacy. Uh, they're worried about cybersecurity. Uh, I think that what we need are a variety of steps to address a variety of problems. Some of these answers may come from antitrust law. Um, I'm not here to dismiss the importance of antitrust law, Mm -hmm. but having worked at a company, Microsoft, that went through the episode of having the government try to break it up. For 13 years? How long did it go on? Well, the the case started in 1990, but there was really a four-year period of time where breakup was very explicitly Mm -hmm. on the table. Uh, And it was not the solution that emerged. It turned out not to be the solution that was needed. I don't believe it's likely to be the solution that will do the most good to address the problems that actually concern people. Let's let's dive into antitrust. First, your experience, because as I understand it, you are the one that swayed how Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer would would deal with this. And it sounds like essentially you said we cannot keep fighting the government at every turn. We have to make some concessions. We have to play nice and again, see what they see in us. And you were actually ruled against at, at first. So how did you turn the ship? Well, and I am always quick to say I was not the only voice uh, calling for this inside Microsoft. And like all such things, it took a number of people learning together over Mm -hmm. time. There did come a time when I think we realized that we may have thought we were big. But as Bill has said, nobody's really bigger than the government. Uh, Yeah. And you have to come to terms with that. 
Mm -hmm. Uh, You have to come to terms with the fact that if an entire industry unites against you, as pretty much happened in the Microsoft case, uh, then you're definitely a lot smaller than you thought you were. Uh, And so you have to work things out. Uh, and you have to be prepared to compromise. I think that's the hardest thing. It's one thing to say, okay, I get it. People have these concerns, but you have to then come to terms with the fact that, no, this isn't just some PR exercise where you just have to tell your story more effectively. You actually need to change, and you can't change unless you are prepared to compromise. There will be days when those compromises will even feel painful. So play that out today. If you have to change Tell me what you think that might look like for, it's not just Facebook, um, for an Amazon, for example. Lena Khan at Yale wrote that really fascinating um, report, Amazon's Antitrust Paradox. And that actually begs the question of, does the way we define a, a, a monopoly have to change? Yeah, and I think the interesting thing there is probably uh, you know, in two important respects. One is, as she has written, have, as others have said, um, you know, in the 21st century, you cannot measure economic power based on money alone or the impact on prices. Uh, you know, data is the currency of our time, um, one of the most valuable currencies of our time. It's one of the things we talk about at some length in our book. Uh, and so you need to measure, I think, uh, you know, economic or market power in a way that reflects the issues of today. I think you do need to think about the impact of companies and the kind of harms you're trying to prevent. Uh, The quintessential test of antitrust lawyers and economists has basically been mostly to look at prices. You know, do prices rise? But today... But Amazon changes all of that because you can benefit the consumer with lower prices, but... You own 50% of the e-commerce market in the U.S. Yeah, and I think as the Justice Department today is saying in Washington, D.C., if you're having an adverse impact on privacy, on data, on democracy, those are problems that we can address using antitrust law. It will need to evolve in some respects. Um, But I don't think that evolution is inappropriate given the challenges we face. Sounds like you're saying the definition does need to change because we have a new currency and it's not just money. Yes, you can put it that way. I might just say if you apply the traditional model Mm -hmm. and then measure market power in these new ways, I think you can get to where you need to go. So what what if you were talking to Jeff Bezos, you probably do. um, What would you say to him on this front? What should Amazon and and the like be, be prepared for? Well, I think whether you're Amazon or Facebook or Microsoft or anyone else, first, I think we have to recognize that the public wants to know more about what we're doing and how we're doing it. We have to step up to more transparency. Uh, I think we have to you know, pr- be prepared to take more steps to protect the privacy of people's information. Um, I do think that there are uh, special issues that arise when we're dealing with advertising and the incentives it creates to use people's data. Uh, and I think that there are impacts on varied parts of the economy from the use of data by the online platforms, all of our online platforms. And we're going to need to be prepared to work through some hard issues because they're coming our way. So let me read you some criticism of your stance from Depaya Ghosh, a d- co-director of the Digital Platforms and Democracy Project at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, quote, by taking these high profile positions, Microsoft is able to highlight its own thought leadership and commitment to individual consumers while throwing its competition under the bus. The other argument I've heard is 
look, a lot of your business doesn't rely, you know, fundamentally on other people's data or on facial recognition. You have your toes in mm -hmm. it for sure. But it benefits you guys to be taking this position now. What do you say to those critics? Well, I think we always have to think about that question. I think it's a more than a fair question for people to ask of us. Um, one thing I would say is at Microsoft, we have a very diversified business. We have a digital advertising business. We have a social media network. Um, we're in all of these businesses. People can say, yeah, you're not into it to the same degree, but I think it's actually good for us to be in these businesses and use that to force ourselves to think through, all right, are we prepared to live with this too? Um, and so I think that part is positive. Second, I would say, um, I don't, don't uh, it, it, I just gave the defense of why companies should not be broken up. Uh, to me, it's all about finding a balanced approach. I think it's good to have lots of companies in this industry with an opportunity to succeed. I just feel that as an industry as a whole, we all need to come together and we need to adapt. It's a different world. The bloom is off the tech rows. That's mm. clear. And if we don't think that through and understand not only what's happening, but why, yeah. we're all going to fail to do what we need to do. Coming up, why Microsoft's Brad Smith says he is most concerned about facial recognition. Let's get wonky in the weeds, but this really matters. So keep listening, people. Let's talk about 26 words. Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, quote, no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. Fast forward to today, what we see posted on platforms like YouTube and what they're going through right now. Has Section 230 done harm and should it still exist? I think Section 230 needs to evolve. It was created by Congress in 1996. I think it was the right law for the right time. The basic premise was these internet services are new, they're young, we need to give them an opportunity to mature. And the best way to do that is to immunize them from the kinds of responsibilities that- From anything that's posted on them. Yeah, well, you know, it, it, they won't have to worry about what CNN has to worry about. They Every won't day, be but I would argue that they are like us now. I think that that's where the world has changed. These are no longer young services. They're no longer small. Um, they are being used and even abused in ways that no one imagined in 1996. Now, I fervently believe that that doesn't mean we should just throw it all out, because I think if you abolished it, you would probably disrupt social media to such a degree that it simply wouldn't work the way the public wants and needs but there are responsibilities that so, we should talk about. So let's take a specific example and talk about what could change. New Zealand, yes. you have talked a lot about the horrific massacre killed 51 people in Christchurch, New Zealand. It was live streamed on Facebook. It actually still, you can still get it um, on WhatsApp because of the, the, the way that, that WhatsApp works, meaning by design, content, content on WhatsApp cannot be monitored and moderated like mm -hmm. it can on Facebook. And 230 allows that to exist. So what should we learn from that? What should change? Well, I think what is already changing, what Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern did starting in New Zealand, was basically say, look, these are very popular services. It, to use her words, it can't be all profit and no responsibility. 
and so what has quickly been driven by the New Zealand government, we've worked, I've worked with, uh, with the Prime Minister and others in New Zealand yep. and with the tech sector as a whole, is to drive a series of changes. And you guys pretty quickly identified actually nine Microsoft services yeah. that, where the video could be uploaded, Xbox Absolutely. and some others. Yeah, everything from GitHub and, and LinkedIn yep. you know, to Xbox Live, OneDrive and the like. It's a good example of the fact that people might sometimes say, well, you don't have to worry about this problem. And then the answer is, well, actually, we do. We do. Yeah. You, you interestingly give Jeff Bezos and Amazon a lot of credit here, yeah. even though I don't believe were any of their platforms where it could be viewed. No, it's really interesting, and I absolutely give not just Jeff Bezos personally, but the people who work at Amazon great credit, because Prime Minister Ardern got on the phone. She called a number of tech leaders and said, I would like you to work with us to do something so that this doesn't happen again. again. And Amazon could have said, we were not part of this problem. There are other companies that said we are not part of this problem. But what Amazon did was do, in my view, what we all need to do every day. Even if we're not part of the problem, we can be part of the solution. And, and that's how we try to think about it at Microsoft. And I, I think it's fantastic that Amazon did. So just to put a button on it with Facebook and how it was streamed on Facebook, as I mentioned, just because of the design of WhatsApp, it, you know, it can still circulate on WhatsApp. Sheryl Sandberg, the COO of Facebook, has said they've used information from Facebook and Instagram to take action against some of those WhatsApp users, but, but it's, still, it's still there. Is allowing that to exist on their platform an abdication of responsibility? I'm actually not familiar with the uh, issue on WhatsApp. So I, I, rather than talk about something I don't know about, what I would say is I actually think this is an instance where you, you saw Facebook and, and, and YouTube as mm -hmm. part of Google uh, take quick action to put in place some new uh, guidelines, restrictions on the use of live streaming. Um, you know, we had already been moving towards similar restrictions at LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's a good example of where we want social media to serve the world in the ways that the public likes, mm -hmm. but not without some rules of the road, um, not without some sense of responsibility to how it's being used. You are most concerned about facial recognition. Why? Um, it is definitely one of the things that I think we should all be thinking very hard about. Um, there's really three problems. One is today, it doesn't yet work as well in identifying the faces of women and people of color as it does for Caucasians or males. There's bias that needs to be corrected. Second, I think it raises real issues in the commercial context. You know, every time we walk into a shopping mall or go into a store, it's able potentially, especially as the future unfolds, to follow us around. And that information potentially could be shared from store to store. And third, probably the thing that worries me the most is it could create, maybe it's already starting to create in some places, a future where the government knows where everybody is, where everybody goes. And if you just think about the right to assemble peacefully, which I think is at the core of democratic freedoms, yes. it puts that at risk. It is the, the mass surveillance future that George Orwell sort of imagined. Well, and we'll get to China in a minute, but look at what's happening in Hong Kong right now. And, and when you talk about China and China's government, that becomes a, a whole other question as well. So... In Microsoft's home state of Washington, Microsoft is currently opposing a proposed law there. It's a bipartisan law that would ban state and local governments from using facial recognition until certain conditions are met. Can you help 
us understand where the line is for you guys? I actually don't think a ban makes sense because you cannot improve a technology if you can't use it. And you can't use it if it's banned. Okay. And there's beneficial and even importantly beneficial uses to this technology. In some ways, finding missing children is, you know, I think a, a fundamental humanitarian goal that this technology is helping to advance. But I know, for example, you guys turned down a deal with the California Police Department Absolutely. for it. Absolutely. Exactly. It. This is the other side of the coin. There should be regulations and restrictions on its use. Companies should be applying these voluntarily at this stage. That's what we're doing. Some of our competitors are not. Mm -hmm. You know, if it leads to the risk of bias, we've turned down uh, deals that do that. If it is going to put people's fundamental human rights at risk through mass surveillance, we should and are saying no. And And we should support, and we are. We've actually not only supported but proposed laws that would address the bias issue, that would start, I think there's more steps that we're gonna have to get comfortable endorsing in protecting commercial privacy. Um, We have absolutely spoken um, very loudly in favor of restrictions on when law enforcement should be able to use this to follow a specific person around. Uh, And so I think that there are real rules and we need them as quickly as we can get them passed. So what's wrong with the bipartisan bill in Washington state right now? Um, there, well, the, the short answer is there is no bipartisan bill in Washington state right now. There is a, there was a bill that was debated this past year, yeah. which we supported. It passed the state Senate 46 to two. It fell apart in yeah. the House of Representatives. There are new efforts to put together bipartisan legislation that will be considered in January. I would hope that we're going to get a very strong bill. And I would hope and expect that we at Microsoft so support it. supported that. Oh, yeah. We, now, the one that passed the House. Oh, absolutely. Yes. I mean, okay. one of the I read a lot about it and read otherwise, but I take your I yeah. take your word for it. Yeah. They're, they're, and just to be clear, yeah, we were very supportive of that bill that passed the Senate. There were amendments in the House of Representatives that we were less enthusiastic okay, about. That's perhaps yeah. it. Um, here's an example of where Microsoft facial recognition technology has been used, tried is in a prison, an, un, an unnamed yeah. prison. At least I couldn't find the, the name of it. Um, what calculation did you make internally as a company that made you comfortable allowing your technology to be used in that It was, really, it was a, a great question, uh, and it was really three things. First, it was a small population, uh, and you could be uh, confident in the accuracy. It wasn't likely to lead to errors given the population that was involved. It was prisoners in a defined prison and the way the technology was designed. Second, uh, it was uh, designed to promote the safety of prisoners. And we thought that was an important societal goal. In what? Give me an example. Well, unfortunately, you know, crimes are still committed yes. by prisoners against other prisoners. Yep. And if you know where prisoners are, uh, then you're much more likely to be able to, to deter that kind of crime. Mm-hmm. Third, by definition, when you know, you're frankly talking about people who are in prison, you are talking about a group of individuals whose civil liberties are addressed in a different way. They don't have the freedom to walk about the streets. So when we put the three factors together, we said this is going to, you know, frankly, keep people safer. It's not going to lead to bias, and it's not going to cause the concerns to civil Has liberties. Has it helped? Do you know any of the results of it? Uh, you know, it's just been implemented, so I have not yet seen anything that would suggest 
one way or the other. The theory is good. I think it, you know, frankly, it, to me, you think about this, this notion of ban. You know, people have said ban the public sector from using facial recognition. Well, that is one of the scenarios that you would ban if you pass that kind of law. China. New York Times has reported that the Chinese government is using facial recognition technology to sur- surveil the, the country's Muslim Uyghur community. Uh, knowing that, because you've talked about where Microsoft won't do work mm-hmm. because of human rights issues and violations. Knowing that, is Microsoft selling facial recognition technology to the Chinese government? I'm not aware of our providing any facial recognition technology to the Chinese government. Um, we put controls in place. We regulate the use of facial recognition to uh, detect whether it is likely to be used or is being used for mass surveillance purposes. And we have those restrictions uh, in place in China. And our goal is to ensure that our technology is not to be used that way, whether we're talking about China or anywhere else. Because in the, world. The, Wa- the Washington Post has re- reported that some Microsoft researchers have worked with the Chinese military run university on AI, for example. And from all that I've read that you've written, it, it sounds like you have made business decisions at Microsoft before not to put a data center somewhere or do, do you know, provide your services somewhere because of human rights concerns. So knowing that about how China is reportedly using against the, the Uyghur community, would that be a red line for you guys? Well, certainly, it, it, number one, it's a red line uh, to provide the tools that would facilitate mass surveillance in a manner that would violate human rights right. in China or anywhere else. There are other red lines as well. Um, we've put in place you know, new practices for our researchers um, so that they're not, for example, working with uh, that specific university in China okay. uh, to facilitate you know, what, in effect, are uh, you know, Chinese military projects. We heard Jeff Bezos, I think just a week or so ago, come out and say that Amazon um, is working on a proposed set of regulations for the U.S. government for facial recognition technology. Um, is Microsoft doing the same? And is it a good thing for Amazon to be doing this? Well, um, first of all, we proposed uh, provisions for legislation, and we did it in a very public way. We did it at a, in a speech I gave at the Brookings Institution in Washington, D.C. last December. I think it's good that companies are taking the initiative and proposing ideas. Mm-hmm. I think that there are two other things that every company should do as it takes that step. First, they should be publicly transparent so everyone knows what they're proposing. That's what we've done. Second, I don't think it's enough to say that this is some problem that the government alone should solve and that we who create the technology have no responsibility to address ourselves. The same day that we proposed legislation for governments, we said we were taking the six principles in that proposed legislation and we were moving forward to start implementing them on a self regulatory basis, a voluntary basis for ourselves. I should note, and you mentioned some of the benefits of facial recognition technology. I think it's easy for the headlines to all become negative about it. But as you mentioned, finding, you know, abducted children, for example, we know police use facial recognition technology to help identify the suspect in the mass shooting at the Capitol Gazette. So there, there are benefits Absolutely. as well. Bill Gates says he thinks Brad Smith would make a great diplomat. So would he ever run for public office? I ask him. Stay tuned. On the issue of LinkedIn, 
there was that New York Times piece this summer that when I read it, I was shocked. Uh, the headline, how, how China uses LinkedIn to recruit spies abroad. Mm-hmm. Western intelligence officials saying that the chi- Chinese agents are using LinkedIn to try to recruit assets, like r- reaching out and saying, I'm so-and-so from here, and can we have a meeting, et cetera. I- is LinkedIn doing enough to police that platform now, perhaps working on more verification methods? Well, LinkedIn is doing a lot. LinkedIn is doing more to address that specific issue. Because I assume you, what did you think when you read it? Whenever I read about a problem, my reaction is always the same. Let's start not by asking ourselves about all the good things we think we're doing. Let's ask ourselves whether we can and should do more. And that's true of every Microsoft service. I think it should be true of every service across the industry. And I think that's a great example of never assume you're doing enough because you should assume that any adversary, especially a foreign adversary that is seeking to exploit your platform, is going to keep getting smarter. So what you really need to be focused on is not whether you're solving the problem as it existed today or a year ago. Are you anticipating what this problem may become 12 or 24 months from now? So to that point, what is what is LinkedIn doing now? What are well, you they, they definitely are taking more steps along the lines that you've described. But I think what this really points to in part is what we call threat intelligence. Hmm. Uh, and, you know, at Microsoft, at LinkedIn, um, you know, we are constantly striving to strengthen what I actually believe is one of the world's leading threat intelligence centers the ability to detect these kinds of interferences. And it may be the recruiting of Americans to spy. Um, It may be the hacking of emails that belong to politicians or political parties. It may be disinformation launched on social media services. It may be tampering with voting. What we always need to be thinking about is the whole panoply of challenges, be anticipating where they're going next based on where they are today, Uh, And then taking more steps to work with people and to strengthen the defenses ourselves. What about bread in our homes for anyone who might have an Amazon Alexa device or a Google Home or use Skype? There have been reports Mm -hmm. of, you know, contractors from Microsoft listening to some Skype conversations. The companies all talk about doing it for the reason of improving the, the AI of it. I get that fundamental point, but it also like freaks people out to think they're conversations are being listened to in any manner, right? And it's never 100%, right? They ha- there were those issues with Alexa, for example. So I don't know, what should we expect at this point? If we have that kind of tech in our house, no matter who makes it, are we, do we have privacy? I think we should start by asking the questions that you're posing now and ask them with specificity for each service. I think people should go online Um, Typically today, there is a dashboard that's available, whether it's from Microsoft or any other company. Start doing some research. It's not that hard. Like take the time and read this stuff? Well, or just ask, you know, find out what information it has about you, about your house, about your family. Do you have a device like this in your home? Uh, I do not. I I unplugged ours. Uh, Yeah. Well, I will admit my wife, my wife, who has been a longtime supporter of technology, drew the line. Okay. We we don't make it from Microsoft, so maybe it was a little bit easier. But she's like, I don't want a microphone in our house listening to our most benign conversations about what we're going to do. Yes, I don't have a very exciting life. But um, on the human rights front, where has Microsoft refused to do work because of human rights concerns? Well, you know, in part, it relates to facial recognition that we've already talked about. 
To me, one of the most important questions for us and other big tech companies is where will we put data centers Mm -hmm. and where will we put certain categories of data? So we have a very elaborate human rights impact assessment that goes into that decision making. There are countries where we have not put data centers. Can you name one? I can name several, but I I won't. You don't in the book either. No, it, I, you know, it, it doesn't really help us solve these problems to engage in that. Um, but, you know, there are certain countries where it's not hard to figure out where we don't have data centers. Sure. There's also countries where we have data centers, but we won't put certain categories of data. Mm-hmm. We, we, as Carol Ann and I uh, state in the book, um, we have data centers in China, but we don't uh, host our consumer-based email there. Um, you know, there are countries where we just feel that the rights of consumers, the rights of citizens uh, would be put at risk in ways that should make us uncomfortable. On Huawei, you have been openly critical of the way that the Trump administration has handled uh, has handled and has treated Huawei. Um, obviously, they're a big customer of Microsoft's Windows operating system. Do you believe that partnership is a threat to U.S. national security? And and why do you think the Trump administration is misguided? Well, what I've actually tried to say is that we need to take these issues around technology and start to take them apart and understand the nuances. Um, Most of the discussion, I think, quite rightly, is on 5G. And I think given the vital role that 5G plays in the national security of our country and other countries, it is absolutely appropriate to say, for example, that the United States will only procure 5G technology from American companies or other NATO allies. And then I would say, we shouldn't assume that the only thing we need to do to protect 5G is buy them from the right countries. There's other security precautions we need to take, so let's be robust. Then there's a different set of issues, uh, which goes to uh, whether we, for example, can sell Windows so it can go on a laptop that is sold by a company like Huawei. And because I think the waiver ends on no- November 19th from the U.S. government. Yeah, and, and, and we have applied for an extension. Um, you know, if, if somebody from the, the government believes that Windows on a laptop sold by Huawei would create a national security risk for the United States, then of course that's something that we want to talk about and think hard about. But we don't think that is the case. That's why we've applied for a waiver. And the other point that we've made is right now there is not a Chinese competitor to a PC oper- for in the PC operating system space. Is it really in the United States economic interest to create not only an incentive but the necessity to go create a Chinese operating system? Because once it's created, it will compete with us around the world. Uh, And so it's those kinds of nuances uh, that I hope we have room to discuss in this country. Okay. I'd like to end on two issues that I care a lot about, and I'm I'm sure you do too. Uh, The first being inequality. And A, uh, the inequality that exists today, if you look at the census numbers, I just double-checked them, the gap between the the, the most wealthy and the poorest American households is at a 50-year high right now, despite a booming economy. Silicon Valley has driven a lot of opportunity. It's also driven and, and exacerbated inequality. And, and couple that with AI, Brookings says an estimated 80 million American jobs are at risk of being replaced by 2030 because of AI. 
Is there a moral responsibility among tech companies to help address the job losses because of AI and the inequality that is growing? I agree that technology has contributed to inequality in this country and in other countries as well. I think we need to think about the types of inequality it has fostered, and I think we have a responsibility to do what we can and should to address it. I think there's two particular kinds of inequality that technology has contributed to the most. The first is actually a technology gap. Um, and well, you talk about you write a lot about rural broadband exactly, access. Exactly. One of the points that uh, Carol Ann and I make in the book is that you know, people hear every day that rural Americans feel left behind, and that's because they are being left behind. They are being left behind in part, not only, but in part because broadband technology isn't reaching them. So they're living two decades behind in terms of the technology that's really fundamental to our economy. I think there's also a skills gap. If you look at the students who are studying computer science in our public schools today, mm -hmm. what you will find is that they are more male, they are more white, they are more affluent, and they are more urban than the country as a whole. And so I think we need to do more to bring these skills to people. Uh, that's why we have a program that goes into high schools. It's why we support a group like Code.org. Uh, I think across the board, we need to do more. And then we need to think about the impact of technology and successful tech companies on housing and housing prices in the major urban And centers. Microsoft has just made another huge investment on that front, I know. So let me ask you, a rad propose a radical idea and, and see what you think about it. Obviously, the U.S. government has a huge issue with our debt right now, our national debt. Okay, and that's because of decisions on, by both parties. But tech companies have a lot of money right now. Is it that radical of an idea to ask and think that perhaps all of the big tech companies could come together to fund a significant push and the infrastructure needed for rural broadband? Because you've said the way a lot of candidates are proposing it is not even the right way. Yeah, what we've said uh, when it comes to rural <clears throat> broadband is first use new wireless technologies that bring the cost way down from an $80 billion problem to a $15 billion problem. Second, I do think that we should create market incentives. I don't think we need tech companies actually to spend enormous amounts of money to solve that problem. If we did, I think that would be a different conversation. Um, I actually think we need some targeted public investments the government, the federal government, is spending $8 billion a year on this problem. It does not need to spend more than $8 billion. It needs billion. to spend smarter, is what you're saying? It could spend $4 million, If we could spend $4 billion, half of what it's spending today, spend it smarter and probably help solve this problem in three to five years. Diversity, uh, lack of minorities and women in tech, especially at the top of big tech. I think about 20% of leadership positions at Microsoft right now are held by women, about 80 by men. What do you do about that? And would you like to see the next CEO of Microsoft be a woman? I think it would be great to see more senior women. And there will be a day, no doubt, when we have a CEO at Microsoft who is a woman as well. I'm not predicting that uh, you know, because we have a great, uh, in terms of when, we have a great CEO right now. And it happens to be Satya Nadella. Um, the first thing I think we should all acknowledge is that we have a lot more work to do. We have way more progress in front of us than behind us. Um, I, to some degree, am uh, influenced by my own experience in working with this. When I became the general counsel of Microsoft in 2002, 22% of our lawyers were women. Uh, this is in a profession that has 35% women in the United States. Uh, in 2018, last year, 
we reached the point where 50% of our lawyers are women. Uh, and, you Good know, for you. Yeah, and increasingly you see this. I mean, seven of my 12 direct reports are women. The first thing that it taught me is you need to be determined and persistent. Um, if you think that this is a problem that you'll solve in a year, you'll probably be disappointed and fail. Um, but then I think you need to be you know, really uh, common sense focused and multifaceted. You need to hire more. You need to develop and promote more. Mm -hmm. You need to create the kind of benefits so that people can not only be successful in their jobs, but they can be great parents as well, whether they're a father or a mother. And that requires a benefit structure that we increasingly have created, not just within the company, but at our uh, suppliers as well. And then I think most critically, I think maybe in some ways the, the biggest challenge is you really need to create a culture that is uh, open, that is welcoming, that is respectful mm. uh, of everyone. And I think especially in the tech sector, which you know, sort of started out as so male-dominated, um, you know, that is still very much a work in progress. And it's interesting, I think, just to reflect on the fact that we want to promote diversity in so many ways, but we actually don't want people to feel completely comfortable dealing with each other however they want. We want a standard of behavior. We want people to deal with each other with respect. We want people to interact with members of the opposite sex in a way uh, that you know, you know, is completely considerate and respectful. Um, you know, it does go back to, I sometimes feel what my parents taught me growing up, you know, don't talk about yourself, take an interest in other people, understand their needs. Um, it is maybe part of the solution to this problem too. My final question would be, Bill Gates has said you'd make a great diplomat. Are you gonna run for public office? I have no plans to do that. I have this job that gives me the opportunity not only to work on technology at a company I love for people I love to be with, but actually to work on the policy issues of the day, every day, everywhere in the world. Well, it's not a no, so that's a very political No, it's a no. Answer. It is okay. a no. <laughs> it's a no. Brad Smith, congrats on the book to you and Carol Ann, and I, I sincerely appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Boss Files. I would love to hear your thoughts on this week's episode and people you want to hear from, so leave a review and follow me on social media at Poppy Harlow CNN. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.